Good morning. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here, and I'm uh, particularly excited about our topic this morning. We're going to be taking a look at the idea of the cost of discipleship and all that that means. And so I thought we would do a little bit of background to see what's sort of going on in the first century with all these rabbis and disciples and learn about our rabbi, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he wishes us to be his disciples. One of the things that we need when we look at this term is really an understanding of its basic meaning. Uh, the word for disciple in the New Testament is found about almost 300 times is the Greek word mathetes. Interestingly enough, we get our word math or mathematics from this word. For the idea behind the word dis- mathetes or disciple is quite simple. To be a learner or a follower of something. Uh, to be involved in a discipline where someone is expert and you want to learn and follow uh, their instruction. And so to be a disciple, uh, you had to have a rabbi, certainly in the first century. Rabbi just means my teacher. And the idea of a rabbi was one who was so distinguished, so uh, popular because of his way of interpretation. So he had a particular way of interpreting, primarily the Old Testament, obviously at that time. And he would draw all sorts of disciples to himself to come and learn about his method of interpretation. And so he would have some fame and you would hear about that rabbi. And so you would want to have a desire to go be with that rabbi, maybe go to his school or maybe move out and follow along with this itinerant teacher. So you wanted to be with him and you wanted to submit to his way of instruction, his ways of understanding the word of God. And this was all done in a, in a community. So you would learn to emulate and imitate him. And you not only would want to interpret like him, but you would want to walk like him. If you were preaching, you'd maybe raise your arm just like him. The idea of emulation and imitation was very much a part of the rabbi disciple community. And this was all done in an area of community and in the area of transparency. If you think about all the times in the scripture where the disciples would be together and Jesus might ask this one disciple a transparent question, yet everyone else would be listening and everyone else would learn about their own way of thinking, their own life, how that other individual answered the question. And so it was the idea of question and answering. All of life was really the subject, not just the interpretation of the scripture. And it was done in this community of desire and submission, imitation, community, and transparency. And so this idea of, of discipleship really then transforms over into what we understand about the Lord Jesus Christ and how he does things. We're going to see then that a, a disciple simply is one who follows and learn from his rabbi and his way of seeing and doing things. So when you think about a pair of glasses when you come uh, to your rabbi and you want to put on his pair of glasses and see life through the way he sees them and do things the way he does things. Now, there were many rabbis and disciples that are found in the scriptures other than Jesus. We see uh, at the time of the Gospels, there were disciples, uh, first of all, of John the Baptist, seen in Mark chapter 2. He had his guys. Uh, The Pharisees had their guys recorded in the same verse in Mark 2. There were uh, disciples of the, of, of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, disciples of Moses. And over 200 times the Lord would refer to his disciples uh, as his guys, his learners and followers. And so all these different groups were going on at the same time. 
It's interesting in Mark chapter 2 on the overhead here, we've got like a little discipleship convention going on here. There are three different groups of disciples seen in this one little verse. Notice John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? You see the three groups? You've got John's disciples, that is the Baptist, the disciples of the Pharisees, and the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes disciples left one group and went to another. Uh, and we would see that as well, uh, where, where John the Baptist disciples would then become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Probably the most famous verse in the New Testament from the lips of the Lord Jesus was the Great Commission, Matthew 28, wherein he tells us to make disciples. That is to become our purpose. That is to be what we're all about. And this idea of making disciples that he's going to see there uh, is found in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And I want you to notice the verbs because the verb is going to be really the key, the template to understanding what he means about making disciples. He's going to say, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And notice Jesus says, I'm going to be with you in that process. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now let's make the the verbs come in in color here. Uh, There's one key command in that whole section. Only one thing that Jesus wants as the eye of the tiger in, in our way of thinking is this idea of making a disciple. And he's going to give us three participles on how to do that. Literally, the go is a going. It's a participle word. While we are going, while we're in the course of our life, have the mindset to be making disciples. And what we're going to learn that disciple making is more than leading people to Christ. It includes that. But Jesus has a greater end in mind. Notice how the verbs help us understand that process. While we are going, be about the business of making disciples. How else do I do that? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they might be identified publicly with the things of the Lord Jesus. And then really the tipping point is that next one for me. Notice what he says. Part of making disciples is teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Clearly, disciple making is a process that is more than simply leading someone to Christ. That's going to come in handy as we, as we continue our time this morning. Looking again at the Great Commission, notice how do we make disciples? By going, we're going to by baptizing, and then by teaching all that I have taught you to observe. And that process then becomes really the idea of the disciple rabbi component, that process of making a disciple. So a disciple of Jesus then is one who is following and learning from Jesus as revealed in scripture about God's ways of seeing and doing things. It's as if Jesus is our lens into God and how we can see how he works and how he operates, what he likes and what he doesn't like. As we learn of the Lord Jesus, we can understand what God is like. And as we follow the Lord and become his disciple, we can thus become godly uh, as we understand what he wishes us to do. And so this idea of discipleship then, clearly that of a process, but here's where uh, the going gets a little more tough. It also has a cost. 
We're going to spend some time, certainly about the last 15 minutes of our time, looking at some verses of the Lord Jesus that describe the cost of discipleship. And one of the things that happens when we, when we take a look at this idea of leading someone to Christ and the, the grace of God, the freeness of the gift, faith alone in Christ alone, and then somebody stands before you and says, discipleship has a cost, I think you might imagine that there's been some confusion over that over the years. There's been some theological misunderstanding between a couple of big concepts biblically, and then we're just going to make them in normal everyday terms the way we talk, but the two things that are being confused when the misunderstanding happens is a failure to distinguish between this idea called justification and this process called sanctification. So let's spend just a couple of moments identifying exactly what justification is and see how it is distinguished from sanctification. For if we blur the two together, we then cause so much to be necessary for one to come to Christ that they never would. They'd have to believe in Christ. They'd have to hate their mother and father and all these things that we're going to study about here in a moment. The scripture distinguishes between these two components where we get into trouble and where we get into misunderstandings is when we try to blur the two together. So let's make sure we have a good handle on each one. And then we can, with that background, take a look at some of the words of the Lord. This idea of justification down here in Texas, this is that moment where we get saved, okay? This is that getting saved moment. And now technically it's a legal term biblically wherein we're declared righteous before God. We were sinners, thus we missed God's standard. Through faith, we can be made right with God. You can learn everything you want to know about God from a fifth grade uh, mathematics class. Uh, sin is, you got that one wrong, Billy. Righteousness is, you got that answer right. As sinners, we miss. As believers, we're now declared righteous. And that is our legal standing before God. Uh, the result of that is that we're no longer under the penalty of our sin. That is separation from God. We've been delivered from that penalty. And that, of course, is the result of our faith in Christ, the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Now, sanctification is going to be a little different animal. Uh, as we get there, just a moment, let me remind us what Paul said in Romans, where he says, for we maintain, now think about this verse, for we maintain that a man is justified or declared righteous by faith apart from works. I know there's some lawyers in the room. I just don't know how he could have written it any more clearly. He says that we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works. Faith alone in Christ alone renders a human being right before God. And that is a beautiful principle of the scripture. The grace-based gospel is found throughout the word of God. And it is simply that true and simply that simple that one through their faith in Christ might enjoy a right standing, a legal presence before God that gives him all the rights pertaining. Now, sanctification is a little different animal. Sanctification is the process by which an individual, a believer, grows. So maybe the illustration of a baby being born. A baby being born, it would be justification. That's the, the new baby. He has a birth certificate. She has all the rights of a child. And now there's the expectation of growth. And that what we're going to see that sanctification is going to deal now with that growth process. It is this thing that we might call discipleship or spiritual maturity, spiritual growth. 
It is thus a process, as we saw in Matthew 28, and it is going to involve the ongoing deliverance of the power of sin in our life. Justification dealt with the penalty. Now the power of sin is what we're going through now. We're trying to be removed more and more from its sway, from its temptations unto the things of God. Sanctification has that idea to be set apart or to be made holy. We're being set apart from the things of the old life, from the things of the flesh, unto the things of the Lord Jesus. We're being taught to observe all that he's commanded. And here's sort of the sticky wicket in sanctification. Our involvement is everything. Our involvement is absolutely crucial to this process or we will not grow. The idea of sanctification includes the idea that it is the result of the believer's diligent commitment in following the Lord. So we're going to spend a little time looking at some verses that the Lord has for us in which he calls us to this life of diligent commitment to him. Sanctification in the book of Romans to the same audience that he just stated in Romans 3. He now says to them, those that have been justified, I want you now, believers, to present your bodies or your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. You believers now present your members, your arms, your legs, your whole being, your way of living, and let it become enslaved to doing right. And that will result in your being sanctified, set apart more unto the things of Christ. Now, there is a tension as we study subjects like this, and we need to deal with it head on. Uh, The normal Christian life uh, begins with faith in Christ and should continue in an ever-growing commitment to the Lord. That is what the Bible presents. There is no way to get out from under that clear expectation. From Genesis to Revelation, that's what God is after. Like a parent gives birth to a child, the, the normal expectation is that the child grows. In the spirit life, the same exists. Those that are born again as new babes are expected to long for the pure milk of the word and to grow in respects to their salvation. The reality, however, at times, tragically, sometimes believers do not grow. Just like the tragedy that we might feel in our hearts if we heard of a good friend of ours, a child who was, who was born, good eight pounds, 20 ounces, and then three, four, five months later is still eight pounds, 20 inches. Something's wrong. That's not okay. That's not normal. Growth is expected. And the tension lets us see, though, that at times, biblically, unfortunately, tragically, and it's never okay, but it is a category that the scripture does record that sometimes believers do not grow. We see that Paul warns us about the the, the danger of having our faith shipwrecked or overthrown. James and Jude will warn the believers that there's false teachers that are come in literally through the side door. They're going to sneak in and they will upset the faith of the believers. John 6, 66 Those that were believers walking with Jesus Christ withdrew. Some withdrew and did not follow after him anymore. It's never a good moment when that happens in the scripture, but I love the Bible for it tells us the truth of here's a category that we can now deal with believers who are stunted in their growth. And it's a a battle that we have to fight all the time because at times it will affect the very nature of the gospel. Jesus predicted this tension 
in the parable of the four four soils. You know that in Luke chapter 8, he's going to tell you about four different responses to the gospel. He's going to to use the image that uh, the seed is going to either come into the ground and produce uh, or it's not. And the first seed is that seed that was thrown on the hard ground, the road by the side, and the birds come and take it so that that seed never goes into the ground, never germinates. He equates that to the seed never coming into an individual and that person doesn't believe so that they can be saved. That very first category is clearly that of an unbeliever. There's no germination at all. But the next three categories actually reveal various responses of believers to the gospel or various growth patterns, probably better, of believers to this process of sanctification. Unfortunately, there's one in which the the seed is received, but the roots are poor. There's another unfortunate one in which the seed is received and it's choked out. If you're a farmer, though, you're only interested in the last one. Uh, because you make your money by taking your crop to the granary and getting money for your, your amber waves of grain or whatever you've put up on the field. And that's how you make bank. And so all you're interested in as a farmer, as the Lord is, as the farmer of our souls, if you will, is a, the type of seed that holds fast and perseveres and produces various fruit-filled crops. That's the only one that the Lord Jesus is going to teach us about is the one that's the most acceptable to God. That the others exist is true, but what he wants us to focus upon is the goal that God has for us as ever-growing commitment to him that that we be full of fruit in our production, uh, in our response to him. And so the normal Christian life certainly begins with faith in Christ and should continue in an ever-growing commitment to the Lord. Jesus himself and his words were very familiar with a faith-only justification. Think of all the verses that might come to mind about John 3.16, for example. We're going to see this verse showing that God loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. In the words of Christ, time after time after time, faith in him results in everlasting or eternal life. You can see the same idea that faith uh, is a part of the gospel of Christ and was all that was required to be properly related to him in John 5, 24. Notice the verbs. He who hears my words and believes me who sent me has eternal life. Present tense. Eternal life is not something we inherit in the future. You have it at the moment of faith. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. That eternal life, that assurance, that rock, that bedrock foundation of of God's word promising us eternal life that begins at the moment of faith is very clear here in John 5, 24. John's whole gospel was written to elicit faith, to draw out faith in the lives of those that were reading it. These have been written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Faith results in eternal life. That's the simple grace-based gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we would call justification, being born again, becoming a believer. But the same Lord who just said those words also has some rather difficult words for us to chew on on the next 10 or 15 minutes of our time together. For the normal Christian life does begin with faith in Christ and should continue in an ever-growing commitment to the Lord. 
One of the, the realities of, of, of individuals blurring justification and sanctification is that there's a necessity to go over and make sure that individuals understand the purity, the simplicity of the gospel of grace. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Because others will add many things that must be done in order to be saved or to go to heaven. Uh, There are many of us that feel called to go protect the purity of that gospel. I've been fighting that fight for 27 years. Your pastor just a little bit longer than that. Your church much longer than that. It's a good fight to fight because it deals with the very nature of the gospel The simple purity of God's grace extended to us in Jesus Christ, that by faith alone, in Christ alone, we might be assured of our relationship with the Lord. And it is that assurance that propels us, that springboards us toward further commitment, or it should. Now, the reality of that that fight, however, is we at times fail to realize there are other fronts to the war. Uh, there are different theaters in war, and we, we spend a lot of time in that theater, the justification theater. I'm going to go over here to the sanctification theater and remind us that that's a good fight to fight as well. We're going to focus now on the latter part of the sentence. We've established well that faith results in righteousness. But now he wants to call us to that ever-growing commitment, that ever sense of destiny of what we were born for. What we are expected to do in the eyes of our Lord is to go and embrace this ever-driving commitment, this ever-growing commitment to the Lord. And he's going to use some verses in first in John, and I want you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15, and then go ahead and sneak a peek over in Luke 14, for we're going to go from John 15 to Luke 14 as we spend our time focusing now upon Uh, the cost of discipleship and all that that uh, might mean. I'm going to set forth four principles for you, four priorities, because I think this idea of sanctification is all about prioritization. It's all about arrangement. It's all about recognizing what God is like and adjusting to him. This room has been arranged for meetings like this. It's not a coincidence that it looks like this. It's intentional. There's energy that's been expended to make it look like this. What the Lord is now going to call us into is that idea of, of an energetic commitment toward him in four areas. The first one in John 15 is this idea of the priority of sustenance or where do I get my life flow from? Where is the, what is the life force in my life? And I'm going to get that really from the image of the vine and the branches, and particularly in verses 7 and 8 of John 15, we're going to see this idea come forth. You know the story. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. The vine, of course, is connected to the the deeper stalk, the trunk, and then the roots go into the ground and sustenance. Nutrition is extracted from the ground and, and driven through the roots out into the branches. And so he's going to tell us branches to abide in the vine. Keep yourself in the vine because here's how the system works. All farmers know it. The produce is on the branch. That's where the little olive plant is going to yield its fruit. That's where uh, the the, the grapes are going to come from if you're a, a vineyardist. You're going to see this idea of production only work if the branch... 
and the vine remain intact. And so speaking to us as if we have ability, because as believers we do, he is saying, you abide in me and my words abide in you. And if you do that, if you abide in me, if my words abide in you, ask what you wish and it shall be done for you. In other words, the the nutrition will flow if, if the connection is sound. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and prove, literally, become my disciples. We become his disciples when we go about the ever-growing commitment to abide in him and remain steadfast in him. Remember the fourth soil? The fourth soil was that that received a seed and that seed held fast and it persevered. It embraced this desire to be ever-growing in its commitment. Same here with this idea of sustenance. So the question that, that, that is begged to be asked is, you know, what is the sustenance from which we're drawing our life from? What, what, are, what are the wells that we're taking our buckets to and filling them up with water? The Lord Jesus provides the only well that gives forth living water. Not just living water for the sake of coming to the Lord, but water to sustain that relationship. And he says, abide in me and I will abide in you. He tells us as little branches, remain in me and sustenance will flow through you and fruit will be produced. And you will then prove to be my disciples. There's another priority that he wishes us to expend in this idea of the cost of discipleship. And this is the idea of a relationship. I call it the priority of relationship just by the, uh, the little tag from Luke chapter 14. If you want to go, go ahead and, and go there now. In Luke 14, 26, it's almost like a, a heavyweight bout. Uh, if you're reading this for the first time and, and you're just listening to the words of the Lord and the large crowds were following after him, then all of a sudden just boom, boom, boom. These very powerful phrases about the kind of commitment that he's talking about. And sometimes I think it's right to come into places like this and to be reminded, to have him shake us a bit of, I'm looking for an ever-growing commitment far beyond that which you might be imagining right now. He gives us something to aspire to far greater than ourselves. And in this priority of relationship, he says, if anyone comes to me and he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, Brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, then he cannot be my disciple. Now, biblically, love and hate are not terms of emotion. They're terms of choice. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. In the establishing of the Abrahamic lineage, God wanted to make sure that it was Abraham, then Isaac, not Ishmael, then Jacob, not Esau. And so that lineage was established by God's choice. And we would see, we read these verses and we go, is he upset? Is he angry? Is he all mad or gooey gooey over Jacob and all mad at Esau? No, it's this idea of Jacob, I chose Esau, I hated. He's not, he's not saying to not have relationship with your mom and dad. And notice the cat categories of your mother and father, your wife and kids, your brothers and sisters. If that doesn't do it, yeah, even your own life. He's not saying don't worry about those relationships, but prioritize them beneath that, subservient that, of your relationship with the Lord. It's interesting in this passage, it's called the, the Lucan travelogue. In Luke nine fifty one, 
Luke writes that Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. And it records roughly the last six months of a meandering of the Lord from Galilee in the north as he makes his way to Jerusalem for the Passover and the last week of his life. And many unique, unique recordings of the Lord are found in this section of Luke from Luke 9.51 to about Luke 17 or 18, that chapter. And we're right dab in the middle of that. And many crowds have been walking with him for a long time. I have no question in my mind that they're believers. And what he's doing is he's using that opportunity to move them toward a greater sense of commitment, this ever-growing sanctification that we're discussing. And he's going to remind them and us that priority to him must take paramount in all things. There's a third price to pay for those that wish to be discipled by the rabbi, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the priority of purpose. It requires that we rearrange the purposes of our life and center in on those that are of most importance to him. I remember it by this, these two little phrases, to carry your own cross and to follow me. And it's found in the very next verse in Luke 14. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In this section of Luke, by the way, the word own, O-W-N, and my appear often. Own describes the things that are important to us. And in the, in the image through the pronouns, if you will, are transfer the things that are important to us and lay them at his feet so that his things become the things most important to me. In this case, I believe he's talking about our purpose. To carry your own cross was that, that emblem, that symbol of death. As I carry my own cross, I identify with him and what he did on a cross. And I also remind myself that in my own self, my end is death. I must therefore follow after him for he provides the way of life. This is the, the laying down of my purposes and wills for my life and rather see what the Lord Jesus says. Nonetheless, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. To pick up your own cross and to carry after him is a crucial cost of discipleship. And the last one, and to me, is the most unusual it's as if he says, you guys reeling a bit? Uh, I've just popped you pretty hard with John 15 and, and, and two verses out of Luke about what it really means to follow hard after the Lord. He says, I want you to think about it. I want you to calculate the cost or count the cost because there's going to be a cost. I think it's very gracious. Now, this is not an invitation to come to Christ that he's offering here. It's an invitation to that ever-growing path toward Christ-likeness through discipleship. And he says, I want you to, uh, to think about a little story about a guy who's building a, a, a tower in a vineyard. He says, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower so that you can look out over your vineyard to make sure that there's no foxes, there's no thieves, which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. I think if that's your response, you've understood the severity of his words, the, the magnitude of what he's talking about when he describes the priority of sustenance and the priority of relationship, the priority of purpose. It's a big deal. There's a lot to it. 
It takes a, 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 an all-in move, if you will. You've got to be completely committed, yet make no mistake about it. That's what he's calling us to. He's not just calling us to a life that does not go to hell or go to heaven. He's calling us to a much greater commitment to that. Like, a, like parents who saw the birth of their child, none of them would ever say, phew, that's over, nothing else to do now. That's just the beginning. Birth is just the commencing of the life. Spiritual birth is just the commencing of the life. And this is what the life looks like that he has in mind for us. So he says, count the cost. Count up your resources. Can you do this? Will you do this? I think, by the way, if we, if we think about it hard, we'll say, no, I don't have the resources to pull this off. But he does. His resources are sufficient. If we choose to abide in him, his nutrition will flow through us. If we choose to make him first, he will arrange for all those other priorities in life. If we choose to follow hard after his purposes, our other purposes now will have meaning in light of that just as well. If we sit down and count the cost to see the importance of this ever-growing, diligent commitment to the Lord, he will supply that which we lack. And so this idea of these four Uh, Priorities maybe can become uh, the fodder of your contemplation this weekend as you think about these things. Uh, Where you're getting your life juices from. Where's the, what are the priorities of relationship and your ideas of purpose and resource. It's interesting that, uh, that we're reminded by this phrase again that the normal Christian life begins with faith in Christ and should continue in an ever growing commitment to the Lord. That's sort of the, um, the basis for how I want us to think about those thoughts of justification and sanctification and how they can so beautifully can blend together, yet distinct as theological entities seen in the life of a vibrant growing believer, they're, the, they're as natural or supernatural as a young child growing up into adulthood, as a young believer ever growing in his or her commitment to the Lord. I'm going to give you some things to think about this week and also one final uh, scripture from Matthew 11. As we see, uh, this type of stuff sort of makes me think about some ideas that might look like this. I was impressed that to the Lord, discipleship is serious business. He's not kidding around. This is serious stuff to him. And we see that in order to accomplish that, of course, he must be first in all that there is a cost to becoming a disciple of Christ. And we've seen four of those payment windows this morning. So the natural question that should be asked, then what are some things that might be preventing me from fully following the Lord? What are some of the retardants? What are some of the stunters in my life? Uh, As I thought about it personally and and thought about a lot that I know and and the disciples that I've known over my life and, and helped along the way, I think one of the great problems that we face is, is at times we just sort of settle. We just sort of settle. There's been some good growth. There's been some good understanding of the things of God. God has blessed me. I understand some principles of life. And then for me, and I don't know about you, there's this temptation just kind of, just kind of throttle back, man. You're fine. Put it in idle. Put it on cruise control. You're good. And that idea might come from, oh, I'm just happy to be going to heaven. Everything else is extra. Or, oppositely, glad I'm not going to hell. That'd be a bad destiny. 
I'll take anything other than that. I know that sounds fun and that's kind of cute, but that's actually blasphemous in the ears of our Lord. He wants so much more than for us to settle for such easy things, to, to be involved with Him, be grateful and thankful for that wonderful foundation, but to move ever forward to the things of ever-growing commitment. And we talk about things like cost. I don't want to run the risk of having you think that I think that the Lord is harsh, that He's mean, that He's like a, he's a bank teller saying, you better pay me back everything I'm owed. In fact, we see in this beautiful little section in Matthew 11, the exact opposite, that He's gentle and humble. And for many years, people have thought, this is a call to faith. This is a call to justification, but not the case at all. This is a call to discipleship. Notice the image is that of a field. The Father, God the Father is over the field and He wants to produce a crop. And what you do at the beginning of uh, the growing season in the spring is you plow up the field so that you can plant. And so His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to take on the unusual role of an oxen. He's a more powerful, older oxen who's plowed that field many times. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and his, uh, his ability and, and willingness to humiliate himself, God becoming a man is a good example. In this image, the older ox, the Lord Jesus, has a yoke on his back. And this, it's meant for two oxen, yet the right side is empty. And thus he says, come to me, all you're weary and heavy laden. You're trying to pay the price of discipleship outside of God's ways. You're trying to accomplish things outside of God's resources. If that's your case, you're tired, I know it. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Word learn there, mathetes, the way the word normally translated disciple. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And if you yoke with me, and I teach you how to plow that field together as we walk through it, you will find your purpose. You will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. But notice, there is a yoke, and there is a burden. And so instead of a bunch of wild oxen that we might be prone to be just sort of meandering around, He's saying, come on over, saddle up, yoke up with the Lord, and he'll teach us how to please God in this ever-growing commitment to the Lord. One of the things that we have chosen to do this morning is to respond to God's word through the the rite of the Lord's Supper and communion. So, fellas, if you would come on down as we think about the Lord's Supper, and as you prepare your hearts for that, I, I wish that you would begin to think through some of these things, maybe ask yourself what it is that might be preventing me from growing in my commitment to the Lord, and use this, this opportunity as a time of refreshment, a time of recommitment if necessary. As the guys are distributing the elements, think through the, the scriptures with me for a, for a moment from the idea of a meal, because all communion really is is a shared meal with God and each other. You see that in the, in the Exodus, the Passover meal, in the peace offering. The only offering described in the book of Leviticus that those were at, that were at peace with the Lord, that were enjoying the fellowship that they had with God, would go down to the temple to celebrate that peace. 
And they would bring a sacrifice and part of that sacrifice would be sacrificed to the Lord and fully burned up. And the other part would be cooked and shared with the priest and the family that was coming to celebrate. A shared communal meal with God and the people of God. And of course, the Lord's Supper revealing that as well. And so as we receive the elements, and I'll lead us in just a moment, why don't we spend some quiet time thinking about these things, clearing our hearts and minds for the reception of the Lord's Supper. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 25, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I've asked Aaron to lead us in a closing hymn. Father, we thank you for the privilege to come and gather, to be exhorted by you and your word. So we ask now that the Spirit of God seal these things into our hearts and let us search the scripture to see if they are so. And if so, may we be different as a result. For each one here, Lord, I pray your blessing upon us that we might have opportunity to, uh, to be ever-growing, committed disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Be blessed. Have a wonderful week.